Crossstream Music presents Something Worth Suffering For The Ideas That Drive Crosstream Music by Andrew Bibb Read by the author Chapter 2 Liars Make Bad Martyrs Where messianic movements tried to carry on after the death of their would-be messiah, their most important task was to find another messiah. The fact that the early Christians did not do that, but continued against all precedent, to regard Jesus himself as Messiah, despite outstanding alternative candidates, is evidence that demands an explanation. N.T. Wright I believe only the histories whose witnesses got themselves killed. Blaise Pascal The truth or falsehood of everything discussed to this point hinges upon the answer to this question. Is Jesus really the savior that Blandina, Faninus, and their fellow believers throughout history thought he was. If he is not, then he is simply one in a long line of failed messianic figures. If he is, however, then he is the very center and fulfillment of history itself. Knowing the truth allows us to cooperate with reality, whether spiritual or physical, and tap into its power. It is our responsibility as rational beings to search for this truth that concurs with reality. Dr. Kraft calls truth the first of the human needs because the only good and honest reasons for faith in anything is the thing's truth or its conformity to reality. The McDowells rightly argue, if we use reason and insist on evidence when we approach the daily decisions of our lives, why should we discard these tools when it comes to our religious convictions? We absolutely should not. In fact, given the stakes, we should be even more careful in making our religious decisions. Many competent scholars and thinkers over the last two millennia have undertaken to determine whether and how we can know the truth about Jesus' identity and actions. Stark contends that the major result of the many unrelenting scholarly attacks on the historical reliability of the New Testament has been to frustrate the attackers because again and again, Scripture has stood up to their challenges. He concludes that the Gospels are quite a reliable report of the Christ story as it was believed and told by the original eyewitnesses, members of what is now known as the Jesus Movement. When Jesus himself was asked to provide a sign that he was the prophesied Savior of humanity, he replied, No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus himself established his death, burial, and resurrection as a standard by which his divinity could be determined. The Apostle Paul places the resurrection of Jesus at the center of the believer's universe, emphasizing that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus never rose, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without that one historical event, Christianity is pointless. Paul goes as far to advise that if the resurrection never happened, we should just give up on finding any meaning in this life, and to eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There has been a sustained attempt over the last few centuries to strip the Christian story of any of its supernatural elements. But just as faith without an object is nothing, so is Christianity without the deity of Christ, as confirmed by his resurrection. During the time of the first Christians, that transcendence and distinctness of the deity which some Christians now want to remove from Christianity was really the only reason why anyone wanted to be a Christian. According to Paul, though, we do not live in a Christless, resurrectionless reality, because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the critical truth for the believer, because, if Christ lives, then he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the vital issue. If Jesus' resurrection occurred, then he has shown himself to be the Savior Blandina and Faninus believed him to be, 
and their sacrifices were well worth the reward. Even most critical scholars, whether conservative or liberal, agree that the resurrection is the key to the Christian faith. In fact, the resurrection was the catalyst in the early recognition of Jesus' deity. So how can we know in the 21st century whether this first century resurrection in fact occurred? First, we should define the term itself. To claim that Jesus was resurrected is not to say that he lived on in the hearts of his followers metaphorically, nor is it to say he escaped death entirely or became a ghost. According to New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, the term resurrection in paganism, Judaism, and early Christianity referred not to a disembodied existence, but the reversal, the undoing, the conquest of death and its effects. Bishop Robert Barron describes resurrection as not a repudiation of the body, but a justification, transformation, and elevation of the body to a new and higher pitch of existence. The claim is that Jesus was physically dead and then was raised to life in every sense of the term, including physically. Philosopher Dr. Gary Habermas has researched the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus since the 1970s. He experienced his own doubts, almost became a Buddhist, and concluded that if the resurrection of Christ proved to be the most plausible explanation of the historical evidence accepted by virtually all scholars in relevant fields of expertise, then believers have a good historical reason to believe in his divinity and identity as Savior. If not, then faith in Christ should be abandoned for a more accurate view of reality. The more he studied, however, the more Dr. Habermas was convinced that the resurrection did in fact occur, even based on only the data accepted by credentialed, even skeptical, scholars. The primary, though far from only, text supporting the historicity of Christ's resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. According to Dr. Habermas, it is taken to be the strongest evidence for the historicity of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Written by the Apostle Paul in a letter to the church at Corinth, it reads, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Except for the last line, this material is not original to Paul. According to Dr. Habermas, virtually all scholars agree that 1 Corinthians 15.3 and following records an ancient oral tradition that reports the gospel data. Jesus Christ's atoning death, burial, resurrection, and appearances to many persons. Although the Apostle Paul wrote the passage, it is not his material, but is actually much older than the book where it is recounted. Most scholars who provide a date think that Paul received this creedal tradition between two and eight years after Jesus' death, or from approximately A.D. 32 to 38. He concludes that this passage presents the foundation for a discussion of Jesus' resurrection. This proclamation connects a clear presentation of the earliest Christian claims with those who were present and experienced these events. Dr. Craig agrees that the belief in Jesus' resurrection was universal in the early church. The tradition that Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 shows that this understanding of the gospel goes all the way back to the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem. The essential claims it makes can be traced back so close to the time of Christ's death that legendary development is impossible. In fact, the very origin of the Christian faith depends on the belief of the earliest disciples that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Dr. Larry Hurtado observes, Perhaps within only a few days or weeks of his crucifixion, Jesus' followers were circulating the astonishing claim that God raised him from death and had installed him in heavenly glory as Messiah and the appointed vehicle of redemption. 
Jesus' burial, death, and resurrection are asserted so soon after the events themselves that they could not possibly be embellishments or mythologizing on the part of later Christians. Dr. Hurtado affirms that the origins of the worship of Jesus are so early that practically any evolutionary approach is rendered invalid as historical explanation. Instead, what we have suggested in the evidence is a more explosively quick phenomenon, a religious development that was more like a volcanic eruption. The centrality of Jesus' resurrection to early Christian belief serves as a helpful indicator of its truth. The resurrection being the pivotal doctrine led to increased amounts of attention with investigations by the earliest witnesses increasing their faith rather than revealing any obstacles. The significance of the resurrection creed of 1 Corinthians lies in both its near historical proximity to the events it describes and the explicit, verifiable claims it makes. It invites, rather than avoids, skeptical inquiry. For example, when the disciples were going around preaching the good news about Jesus' resurrection, no one produced his dead body, which would have spelled the end of Christianity at its very inception. Dr. Craig notes, one of the most remarkable facts about the early Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection was that it flourished in the very city where Jesus had been publicly crucified. So long as the people of Jerusalem thought that Jesus' body was in the tomb, few would have been prepared to believe such nonsense as that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Consequently, the city of Jerusalem is the last place the disciples should have preached the gospel message if they had been lying or misinformed. On top of this, the enemies of the Christian movement were prepared to challenge any overzealous disciple who might have desired to exaggerate the story to make it sound more appealing. In broadcasting that most of the 500 who had seen the risen Jesus were still alive at the time of his writing, Paul invites investigation. He would not have said this if the event had not occurred. He wouldn't have challenged people to talk to the eyewitnesses if the event had never taken place and there were no eyewitnesses. But evidently, there were witnesses to this event, and Paul knew that some of them had died in the interim. Therefore, the event must have taken place. The inclusion of James, Jesus' half-brother, in the list of those Jesus appeared to is especially important. Critical scholars almost always acknowledge that James, the brother of Jesus, was also an unbeliever, and perhaps even a skeptic, during Jesus' public ministry. After Jesus' death and alleged resurrection, however, we find James as the leader of the Jerusalem church. This radical change in James' attitude towards Jesus' message indicates that a major event occurred. Because of his radical transformation, Dr. Craig asserts that James' conversion is one of the surest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul himself saw the resurrected Jesus. This is established beyond doubt by Paul's references to it in his own letters. For Dr. Craig, Paul's testimony makes it historically certain that various individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus after his death and burial. A notable characteristic of eyewitness reports of Jesus' resurrection is how coherent and unimaginative their accounts are. James Charlesworth points out, that the New Testament authors are under careful control when they describe Jesus' resurrection. There is none of the unbridled speculation of the authors in later second and third hand accounts. These are only examples of the wealth of evidential knowledge scholars are able to glean from this passage and others like it. Because of these, Dr. Craig concludes, the evidence firmly establishes that on separate occasions, different individuals and groups had experiences of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Scarcely any historical scholar today disputes this conclusion. True belief is exemplified by what one does rather than says. What we practice, not what we preach, is usually our great contribution to the conversion of others. We know about the resurrection of Christ primarily through the eyewitness testimony of those who were there at the time, and it was on this basis that they could believe that Jesus was the Messiah. If we can determine that they acted in a way 
consistent with their assertion that Jesus died and rose again, thus certifying his messianic claims, then we can plausibly conclude that Jesus is who he said he was and can be relied upon for what he promised. Dr. Sean McDowell shows that while scholars can show with strong historical probability that at least some of the disciples died for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus, there is no doubt that they were all at least willing to. He concedes that there are many martyrs outside Christianity and does not claim that only Christians have martyrs, but there is a massive difference between willingly dying for the sake of the religious ideas accepted from the testimony of others and willingly dying for the proclamation of a faith based on one's own eyewitness account. Modern martyrs die for what they sincerely believe is true, but their knowledge comes second-hand. In contrast, the disciples went to the grave with the conviction that they had seen the risen Jesus. For that reason, it is more than fair to conclude that we can trust their testimony. Dr. Jeff Morrow agrees. Jesus' apostles were executed for their belief in Jesus' resurrection. People die all the time for things that are not true, but no one dies for something they know is not true. Sometimes, even when they believe something, they recant under torture and threat of death. But no one endures torture or willingly goes to death for something they know is false. This point is all the more relevant because, as we saw in the previous chapter, the disciples were not predisposed to acts of courage. When Jesus was arrested, they ran away. They showed signs of craven cowardice and hid themselves. Peter even denied that he knew Christ. When Jesus died, they returned to their old lives and gave no thought to trying to carry on without him. That all changed when they encountered him alive after he had been dead and buried. Dr. Habermas explains, The transformation of the witnesses, even to the point of being willing to die for their faith, is an additional indicator of the strength of their convictions that they had seen their risen Lord. It is true that people are often transformed for false causes that they also believe in, but there is a qualitative difference. Both the disciples and the others who are willing to die share a sincere belief. But very much unlike the others, the disciples were willing to suffer not just for their belief concerning who Jesus was, but precisely because they had seen him after his death. In brief, their transformation was not simply on beliefs about Jesus, like so many others, but on the knowledge that they had seen him alive after his resurrection. In short, their transformation could only have occurred because of something like the resurrection. The apostles were not unaware of the dangers that proclaiming the resurrection message entailed. Persecution against the first Christians was sporadic and local, but there is evidence that the public proclamation of the faith could be costly. Despite this, the apostles publicly proclaimed the resurrection of a crucified criminal with full awareness of what their actions might cost them, even before the first statewide persecution of Christians under Nero in AD 64. In addition to physical persecution, the disciples and early Christians suffered subtler forms of mistreatment. Dr. Hurtado observes, It is fairly clear that a good many Christians did face the possibility of paying social costs for their faith, ranging from ridicule to much more painful opposition, whether from family members or wider social circles. And some Christians did find that their faith even led to trouble with the political authorities, usually local authorities. Josh and Sean McDowell point out that the first generation of believers had everything to lose and nothing to gain by fabricating a false story about Jesus' resurrection. Had there been visible benefits accruing to them from their efforts, such as prestige, wealth, or increased social status, we might logically account for their actions. As a reward, however, for their wholehearted and total allegiance to the risen Christ, these early Christians were beaten, stoned to death, thrown to the lions, tortured, crucified, and subjected to every conceivable method of stopping them from talking. Yet they were the most peaceful men and women, who continually demonstrated love and never forced their beliefs on anyone. 
Rather, they laid down their very lives as the ultimate proof of their complete confidence in the truth of their message. This behavior only makes sense in light of the resurrection of Christ and his promise of the same resurrection for those who rely on him. Truth loves a competitor. It is the best way of showing itself to be true. The best way to tell whether a thing is authentic is to examine it side by side with the fake. Contrast and comparison, not isolation, emphasize the unique features of an object, idea, or hypothesis. This holds true with the events surrounding Jesus' resurrection. Those who insist on explaining the disciples' behavior in some way that does not involve Jesus' resurrection have yet to propose a coherent and feasible explanation. One of the alternate theories proposed supposes that the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were hallucinating and only thought they saw him. This is unlikely, as Dr. Morrow explains. If you are having a hallucination, you are seeing something that is not actually there. This means that the hallucination is coming from your mind, i.e., is private and personal. No two people will see the exact same hallucination. Even in instances where people are gathered together and all hallucinate because of a shared experience, example, from drugs or sleep deprivation, etc., they will not see the exact same thing. But what we find in the Gospel accounts are visions of the risen Jesus where he appears to people who do not expect to see him, and yet they all have the same experiences when they are gathered together. The accounts do not read the way hallucination experiences would read. Even if they had hallucinated, hallucinations simply do not cause new beliefs in sane, rational people. Another theory supposes that Jesus did not actually die, but was only unconscious when he was brought down from the cross. He then escaped the tomb and showed himself to his disciples. The McDowell's write of this theory, to claim that Jesus survived the rigors of crucifixion and then convinced his disciples that he was the Lord of life would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Regarding this hypothesis, Dr. Habermas explains, if he had shown himself to his followers a few days after the crucifixion, as the early sources indicate, he would have been in horrible physical condition. Bruised, beaten, bloody, pale, limping, and in obvious need of medical assistance. But such a condition would have disallowed the view that he had been raised from the dead in a resurrected body. The disciples and their contemporaries were pre-scientific, but not pre-common sense. They had eyes that saw, and they used them quite well. They knew the difference between a hallucination, a suffering survivor of a botched crucifixion, and the supernaturally resurrected Christ. As observant Jews, they were also raised never to bear false witness. This was especially important in the days before forensic science, fingerprinting, and DNA evidence. Honesty among witnesses, as well as the penalty for lying in such courts of law as the disciples were compelled to testify in, was essential in determining the truth of legal claims. The words and actions of the disciples under these conditions were those of honest, sane, and rational people who affirmed only what they knew to be true. Most who discounted possibility of Jesus' resurrection do so because they refuse to believe miracles are possible at all. Dr. Marcos points out, however, believing in miracles does not mean believing that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It means believing that there is a supernatural being or at least force, in the universe that is capable of intervening in human events, suspending the laws of nature, and consequently altering the natural flow of cause and effect. Because they are exceptions to usual natural processes, miracles exist outside of the realm of scientific investigation, but they are not irrational. Dr. Craig asserts, miracles are impossible only if it is assumed that God does not exist. Short of an absolute proof of atheism, one has to be open to the possibility that God has intervened directly in the world, and thus also to evidence that he has done so. Given this, the McDowell's determine, only one conclusion takes into account all the facts and does not adjust them to preconceived notions. It is the conclusion that Christ is in fact risen, a supernatural act of God in history. Dr. Craig also concludes, 
Once you give up the prejudice against miracles, it's hard to deny that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation of the facts. Even though the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus are wondrous and awe-inspiring, there is no good reason to think them intrinsically improbable. Wright goes as far as to declare, Were it not for the astounding and worldview-challenging claim that is thereby made, I think everyone would long since have concluded that the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the correct historical result. If some other account explained the rise of Christianity as naturally, completely, and satisfyingly as does the early Christians' belief, while leaving normal worldviews intact, it would be accepted without demur. The resurrection of Jesus, being the simplest, most cohesive, and most adequate explanation of the disciples' behavior, is to be preferred. The durability of the faith, despite both external and internal challenges, also serves as evidence of its truth. Soon after Jesus' resurrection, the apostles were arrested for spreading what the religious leaders saw as idolatrous claims of Jesus' divinity. The apostles waited under guard while the Jewish ruling council, who regarded this elevation of Jesus as completely inappropriate, even blasphemous, determined what to do about them. Gamaliel, a prominent rabbi and leader of the Pharisees, told his fellow council members to take care what you are about to do with these men. He recalled that other revolutionary figures had arisen in recent years, but once the leaders died, so did the movements they started. He recommended that the council keep away from the apostles and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Gamaliel also warned that if the message the apostles preached was of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Obviously, Gamaliel saw the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christianity as being so inhospitable that for it not to fail would constitute an absolute miracle. As we can clearly see 2,000 years later, it did not fail. It was the apostles' willingness to suffer for what they knew to be true that set the example for future generations of believers. From an ancient letter of Pliny the Younger, we learn that the Christians would rather die than worship and bow down to any of the multitude of gods in the Roman pantheon, or to an image of the emperor himself. Something powerfully attractive must have resonated with outsiders, making early Christianity attractive, enough to the point where thousands were willing to suffer the negative consequences and sometimes die for the cause of Jesus. These future generations served only to strengthen the case for the resurrection, because they affirmed the testimony of the apostles with their lives. If you were beheaded, that being regarded as the humane sentence, but the rest were put through such an amazing array of tortures that it seems beyond credibility that anyone persisted, especially since most could have escaped at any point along the way simply by defecting. But again and again, they bore it all. These martyrs make sense only in light of the resurrection. G.K. Chesterton examines the strange connection between Christianity and martyrdom. Christianity has shown a wild encouragement of the martyr. Historic Christianity was accused, not entirely without reason, of carrying martyrdom and asceticism to a point, desolate and pessimistic. The early Christian martyrs talked of death with a horrible happiness. They blasphemed the beautiful duties of the body. They smelt the grave afar off like a field of flowers. All this has seemed to many the very poetry of pessimism. The very strangeness of this relationship has proven both fascinating and revolting to non-believers. Some have tried to write off the sacrifice of believing martyrs as the product of mental disorder or religious fanaticism. To be sure, there have been some unhealthy ideas about martyrdom that did in some cases lead to excesses confessors receiving an exalted, priestly-type status, lapsed Christians seeking forgiveness through voluntary martyrdom, and the rise of a cult of martyrs. These are distortions of genuine martyrdom. Edward Smither explains, The word martyr, martis, literally means a witness, while the verbal form, martyreo, 
refers to the action of witnessing. In much of the New Testament, the term is used to describe eyewitnesses of Christ. However, in Revelation 2.13, John begins to use it to distinguish those that have witnessed unto Christ by giving their lives. This was how the word was commonly used by the church before the end of the second century. Martyrdom is best understood as witnessing or showing what one believes to be true regardless of the circumstances. In no way is it the intention of martyrs or witnesses to add to or take away from the message of Christ, but simply to endorse that message in spite of opposition to it. The tendency to whitewash martyrs as innately brave or exceptionally pure is harmful. It distracts from the reality that these were unremarkable, imperfect men and women who had all of the same flaws that the rest of us do, but because of their hope of reunion with Christ, they did not find it hard to die for the true God. They themselves explained as much. They recorded each other's deeds not because they wanted the glory of their martyr's crown to be arrogantly broadcast, but rather that the ordinary men who constituted God's people might be given strength in the test of their faith by the sufferings of those who had gone before. Augustine taught, It's easy enough to celebrate in honor of a martyr. The great thing is to imitate the martyr's faith and patience. Martyrs do not do what they do because they are exceptionally courageous. They do it because they realize their insufficiencies, leading them to embrace their need for a savior. They do it because they are convinced of the truth of what the apostles saw and reported. Their reliance on Christ, not innate perfection, is what sets them apart. Another charge levied against martyrs is that they are suicidal. Chesterton explains, Obviously, a suicide is the opposite of a martyr. A martyr is a man who cares so much for something outside him that he forgets his own personal life. A suicide is a man who cares so little for anything outside him that he wants to see the last of everything. The martyr is noble because he confesses this ultimate link with life. He sets his heart outside himself. He dies that something may live. He further explains, the Christian feeling evidently was not merely that the suicide was carrying martyrdom too far. The Christian feeling was furiously for one and furiously against the other. Although they looked so much alike, they were at opposite ends of heaven and hell. John Bear explains that the believer does not embrace death as an act of desperation, bringing about the end, or as passive submission to victimization resigning oneself to one's fate, but rather as the beginning of new life. Martyrdom is not the rejection of life, and it is not to be actively sought after. Martyrdom is simply having done all to stand firm. The witness of the first and subsequent generations of Christians and martyrs ensured the transmission of the message of Jesus' resurrection to us today. Some of us have a problem believing that message, because it cannot be scientifically or mathematically proven beyond all doubt. But almost everything we know and believe to be true is based on somebody else's word. Anytime we ask for directions, use the internet for research, or take someone's advice, we are putting faith in their word. We tend to believe what people tell us, even though we do not expect them to die for what they think to be true. How much more can we believe those that are? Few truths can be proven by a mathematical formula. There is a limit to what science can guarantee is true. Science is not a belief system. It is a method utilized in organized efforts to formulate explanations of nature, and in its proper role does not propose to answer questions of meaning, value, and significance. The aspects of reality that mean the most to us, such as the loyalty of a spouse, the fairness of an employer, or even the belief that living is better than not, are not grounded in science because they are far higher and more transcendental than what science can observe. Instead, we use the two criteria we discussed at the end of chapter 1 to determine the answers to the most significant questions of life, reputation or credibility, and first-hand knowledge. Even the assumption that our reason allows us to understand reality accurately is based on presuppositions that cannot be proven. Chesterton points out, 
It is idle to talk always of the alternative of reason and faith. Reason itself is a matter of faith, to assert that our thoughts have any relations to reality at all. It takes some humility to recognize the role that the word of others plays in shaping our beliefs. But once we embrace it, we can start to determine what constitutes a credible source, moving us closer to an accurate view of reality. Chesterton quips, Thinking in isolation and with pride ends in being an idiot. Every man who will not have a softening of the heart must at last have softening of the brain. For example, we start our lives, rightly, by assuming the veracity of the tradition we are brought up in. Children are designed to take their parents at their word, because parents are supposed to be trustworthy. But as a child transitions to adulthood, he or she assumes the responsibility of reasoning for him or herself. His or her increasing ability to reason corresponds with the responsibility to do so. Tradition is not a guarantee for truth, but it is the best starting point we as finite beings have. Tradition is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than to some isolated or arbitrary record. It means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about, and it objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. We take our traditions at face value at the beginning, but as we grow, we compare those traditions to our experiences to see if those traditions correspond with reality. If not, we look at other traditions to see if they explain the human experience better. Whatever tradition or philosophy we adopt determines what we are able to believe about the nature of reality. For instance, if a man believes in unalterable natural law, he cannot believe in any miracle in any age. If a man believes in a will behind a law, he can believe in a miracle in any age. The great thing about the Christian tradition is that it can be traced back to its very inception. Its transmission involves an unbroken chain of witnesses who, while differing on many of the particulars, maintain the resurrection creed with unprecedented unity and consistency. Traced all the way back, this tradition originates from a single event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. The truth of this tradition is based on the verifiable accounts of witnesses to that event and its transmission guarded through the sacrifice of believers so we could benefit from the knowledge of that event and its implications. Reason is a tool we can and should use to pursue truth and seek God and perhaps feel our way toward Him and find Him. Reason can remove the barriers to belief, but intellectual assent is not faith. Faith is relational. If reason is like carefully packing a parachute, making as certain as humanly possible that it will open and catch us when we need it, faith is jumping out of the airplane. At that point, the previously intellectual process becomes experiential because we put ourselves in a state of complete reliance on the parachute. In the same way, faith in Christ involves moving beyond the intellectual into the relational. In the same way, faith in Christ involves moving beyond the intellectual into the relational. This is not a one-sided relationship, because when we trust in Christ, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Dr. Habermas explains, The Holy Spirit stands alongside the believer, going beyond the subject of evidences and providing direct testimony to Christians of their salvation. While the evidence shows that Christianity is true, the witness of the Holy Spirit marks those who belong to the truth. It is through Him that, whenever we have a desire to know and live in accordance with the truth, but are plagued by doubt, we can cry, I believe, help my unbelief. The concept of death features prominently in the story of Christianity, which begins with the death of mankind through Adam and Eve, finds its culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and sees his message spread through the deaths of believers. There is no denying the central role that death has to play. Even the resurrection creed begins with Christ died. The reason is that death is the overarching problem 
not only in the story of Christianity, but in the story of humanity. The authors of the Christian way affirm, in the affairs of men, death claims final authority. It lords over every magistrate and worldly power, over every culture and civilization. Viewed from a worldly perspective, the annihilating nothingness of death seems all-powerful. This problem is intensified in that none of us gets a choice in whether or not to exist, but are thrown into an existence in which, whatever we do, we will die. Mortality, in fact, is the only thing that is common to life on earth, and the ability to contemplate and to use our mortality is that which is distinctively human. For the first generations of believers, death was especially imminent. Smither observes that the Christian movement was founded upon and birthed through suffering and persecution. They were forced by their circumstances to come to grips with the role death plays in God's overall plan for the resurrection of humanity. They could not afford to trade the historical truth of Jesus' resurrection for a metaphorical one, because death is not metaphorical. Self-help books and inspirational catchphrases do not do any good when you are dead. Of course, just as death is a universal problem, so have been attempts to come to terms with it, or even solve it. Baer observes, Despite our knowledge of our mortality, however, or rather because of it, we are tempted to hold on to this life as we know it, to do whatever we can to secure it, to live it as mine for as long as I can perpetuate it. In any case, whether attempts to solve it be scientific or superstitious, death is the ultimate problem. The central claim of Christianity is that this problem has been solved in the divine person of Jesus through his death and resurrection. The Apostle Peter reminds believers that they have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. They have been given the solution in the person of Jesus. For Peter, this solution was not a reaction to the problem of death introduced by Adam and Eve, but was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He explains that God's redemption of sinners through the precious blood of his Son was always part of the divine plan of salvation, and seeks to comfort them with the knowledge that Christ's sacrifice unfolded as part of God's eternal plan. Likewise, Paul asserts that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It would seem, then, that the introduction of death into the equation did not take God by surprise, and in fact was a key element in his plan of salvation, even before creation. But why would death be necessary? The first reason we have already seen. God wanted man to be a voluntary participant in his plan. For man to have a choice in whether to live in harmony with the life of God, he must also have the choice to reject that life and embrace death. Man chose death, which necessitated the death and resurrection of God, in the person of Jesus to restore man to life, which was a restoration of man to himself. Just as in the beginning, man is now free to embrace or reject God's life by embracing or rejecting Jesus, who is not only the way, but also the truth and the life personified. Dr. Habermas explains that one of the central claims Jesus made, and confirmed by his resurrection, was that persons could enter the kingdom of God if they responded properly to Jesus and his message. The single requirement is dependence on Jesus Christ, who is himself the way to such life. Only by such action can persons be properly related to God and others. This is the first answer to the question of death in God's plan. Knowing that man would choose death instead of life, God already had a plan in place to restore humanity to his family, even before he created them. But, in addition to this, some of the early church fathers ventured a second reason. In Life and Death in the Age of Martyrdom, John Baer examines the teachings of some of the earliest believers and their understanding of the role of death in God's plan of salvation. Their hostile circumstances forced them to come to terms with the fact that physical death still had a part to play in the life of the believer, despite their belief in the resurrection. They believed death was necessary for man to fully appreciate the life that is made available through reliance on Christ. Baer begins with a study of Ignatius, 
a church leader who taught and was martyred within living memory of Christ and the apostles. Ignatius, while being taken to Rome to be killed, wrote to his fellow believers, It is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Bear shows that for Ignatius, death was a defining moment, not the end, but the beginning, not disappearance, but revelation. Death for Ignatius was the way a believer is born into true life. He grasped Jesus' teaching that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Bear examines another early teacher, Irenaeus, who explains that the spirit of a man is infused with the life of Christ when he believes, but his body is still subject to death. But when a believer's body dies because it is weak, the life of the spirit takes control and subsumes the flesh into itself. The weakness of the flesh is traded for the strength of the spirit, and only in this way does man become fully alive. Man becomes alive because of the participation of the spirit, but remains also human because of the substance of the flesh. For him, it is this integration of the flesh of man and the life of God that produces a complete human being. For both Ignatius and Irenaeus, death is necessary for the believer to complete this process. The death of the flesh relinquishes control to the life of the spirit, which is the life of Christ's resurrection. Bear calls the martyr the paradigm of the living human being, flesh vivified by the spirit. Bear also explains that the life of God and the death of man, which had never before mixed, were so combined in the person of Jesus. He was the life of God incarnate, but also experienced the death of man, and having done so, he can bring us through the process in reverse. We experience death, but death itself facilitates our passage into the life of God, a life which can no longer be touched by death. In doing so, Christ has changed the use of death for all men and women throughout time. Instead of experiencing death as separation from God, which is the definition of death in its truest sense, Christ converted death into the tool for reunion with God. Bear observes that mortality is not a property of God. Creating life is not a property of humans. But Christ has brought both together, conquering death by his death, and in this very act conferring life. For these early believers, death was not only essential to rebirth into the life of God as a complete human being, but is also instructive about the need for a source external to ourselves for life. Irenaeus suggests it is only by our mortality, by the experience of death in our separation, apostasy, from God, that we come to value life, knowing that in ourselves we do not have life, but depend for it upon God. Our experience of death drives home this point in a way that we will never otherwise fully know. We need to know experientially what it is to be weak, if we are to know the strength of God. For as Christ both exemplified and affirms, my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Dr. Kreeft summarizes, God lets man fall from Eden, so that an even more glorious unity can be attained through Christ. Just as our ability to appreciate the presence of God is also what enables us to dread his absence, so the gut-wrenching experience of death enables us to appreciate his life in a way that Adam and Eve were unable to do before the fall. Having never experienced death, they could not contrast it with life. But the human race, having wallowed for millennia in an endless cycle that always culminates in death, is now able to fully realize how superior life in God really is. There is a point of comparison now. As mentioned before, we cannot choose not to exist. We are born into this world without being consulted. It is involuntary. As a result, we cannot choose not to die. It is also involuntary. 
But because of Christ's resurrection, we do not have to remain passive and frustrated victims of death and of the givenness of our mortality. We can choose to die to our involuntary created existence. We can begin to live the life of the Spirit of Christ, with whom he seals every believer as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it through the death that facilitates our passage into limitless life. In this process, God takes dust from the earth, which I now am, and mixes in his power. He now finally fashions a true living human being, the glory of God. Even though death is still a reality, the final say is that of God, who uses our mortality to educate us of our finitude, our embodiedness, and our earthiness, and so enables us, finally, to receive that which we don't have in or from ourselves, that is, life. Bear concludes, Christ is not plan B, but rather the realization of God's intention, stated at the beginning and brought to completion by the ark that leads from Adam to Christ. The work of Christ in the Passion is not simply a remedy, but the expression of the life, love, and being of God, which encompasses and transforms human deviation and death itself. Far from being an historical curiosity, Christ's resurrection is the prototype for our own. He blazed the trail through death to eternal life, and he tells us that we can follow in his footsteps, with his hand leading us the entire way. Even now, when we only have the down payment of being made completely alive, we can begin the process of dying to the mortality that temporarily enslaves us, and, in gratitude to God and care for others, live as conduits of the life that we still have yet to fully experience. Thank you for listening to Something Worth Suffering For, the ideas that drive Crosstree Music. For free Crosstree Music and other content, visit crosstreemusic.com.